I safe to come up here? That's the big question. <laughs> Praise the Lord. What a great time to be in worship together. So glad to see all of you. <laughs> Have you ever seen somebody before and you thought, I know I know them, you know, and you keep trying to figure it out in your mind, you know, and then you start trying to talk to them because you're like, maybe they'll say something or you try to introduce them to somebody to see if they'll say their name. Well, I'm sure you've been there before. A few years ago, Rachel and I were in Nashville together and we were having lunch. We went to lunch at Monell's, which is a family-style restaurant in Nashville. I actually had been diagnosed with uh, strep throat, but I said, we're going to eat. And so we went out to eat. It was the last seating. It was 2 o'clock. So they seat you at tables with other people. So we sat down. There was a gentleman. Uh, there was a lady. There was a child. They appeared to be together. So I was, just didn't feel like talking, but Rachel tried to engage them in conversation. They didn't really have much to say. And I kept thinking, I know him. How do I know him? And then it was like, maybe it's celebrity. It's somebody that I should recognize. Long story short, it dawned on me that this was the offensive tackle for the Tennessee Titans, Michael Orr, who was made famous by that movie, The Blind Side. And he's sitting there, we're eating the same fried chicken and fried, you know, country fried steak. And uh, I'm thinking, I know who this is, you know. And I, I don't really let on to Rachel. I perk up a little bit and talk to him a little bit about SEC football. And uh, as we left... I said uh, to Ra Rachel, I said, did you know who that was? And she said, no. And I said, do you remember the movie The Blind Side? And she went, oh, my goodness. She said, I was taking a picture of the food because that's what we do nowadays, right? <laughs> we post it on Instagram. And she said, and I was doing my best to crop him out of it. And we would have had proof that we had lunch with uh, Michael Orr. But you'll just have to take our word for it. Well, the disciples had been walking around with Jesus just for a long time. They had watched him minister. They had seen the miracles he performed. They saw the way he treated people with kindness and tenderness. They heard the amazing insight that he offered. But the question is, did they really know who he was? For the last several weeks, we've been going through a series we're calling King Jesus. And there's no one more fascinating, no one more significant, no one more important who has ever lived than Jesus of Nazareth. His birth, life, death, resurrection, his teachings, his miracles, the commission that he gave to those around him to follow him, to go and tell, has had more impact on this world than any other person or any other movement in the, all of history. And as he walked the earth, Jesus preached about the coming of the kingdom of God. And his disciples had heard that message, and it's as if in Peter's mind the wheels start turning. And he's thinking, I think I might know who the king is. The, the disciples had heard of a coming Messiah. But Jesus didn't really foot the bill for what the people were looking for in a Messiah. Frank Matera says, Jesus is the expected Messiah in the most unexpected manner. So how would Jesus be enthroned or how would he prevail over his enemies? Well, his followers didn't know that. But the wheels were turning in Peter's mind because he thought, I think I found the soon and coming king. Our series comes from the Gospel of Mark. That's where we've been the last several weeks. We've looked at King Jesus, the friend of sinners. King Jesus, the miracle worker. King Jesus, the healer, the teacher. And this morning, we're going to look at King Jesus, our leader. And we're going to be reading from Mark 8, and beginning in verse 27. And this passage of Scripture is a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. David Garland writes, this passage 
serves as a hinge between the first half of the gospel, where Jesus' power is so prominent, and the second half, where his weakness becomes predominant. So we're at a turning point here. And of course, that weakness gives way to ultimate triumph. But let me read to you now Mark 8, verse 27, and I'll read through verse 33. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued the question by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. The disciples rightly identify Jesus as Messiah, but have a wrong understanding of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. What I propose to you this morning is that King Jesus, calling King Jesus leader, means that you are willing to truly follow him. So how do we follow King Jesus? I believe the scripture reveals that following King Jesus as leader begins by knowing who he is, why he came, and what he demands. So we're going to first look at who he is. Verse 27 says that Jesus and his disciples travel to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is uh, north of the Sea of Galilee. It's actually about 25 miles north of Bethsaida, which is where they had been. He had healed a blind man there. It's right up against Mount Hermon. So it was plenty of traveling, so as they walked, Jesus had plenty of time to talk to them. And so this is where Mark says he began to question them. He offers his first question. He says, who do people say I am? This is kind of a poll of sorts. Let's kind of gauge public interest or public opinion. It also kind of invites the tension there between Jesus' understanding of himself and the expectations that those around him were putting on him. So he asks, what are you hearing? What are you guys hearing? What are people saying? They say some think he's a resurrected John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. Well, we know they're way off, right? They they had missed it. But it seems as though most people identify Jesus as being sent from God. Just as John the Baptist or Elijah or the prophets were sent by God, this is a messenger from God. That's kind of how you would sum up what they believe. They just don't know exactly who He was. So it's here that Jesus asks his second question. But who do you say that I am? Up until this point, the disciples were described as referring to Jesus as teacher. He was a rabbi. They were followers. And so they called him teacher. In fact, you'll remember several weeks ago, uh, we talked about Jesus and his disciples out on the Sea of Galilee. He falls asleep at the stern. Storm rises up. They go to wake him up and they say, teacher, teacher. Do you not care we're going to perish? So that's how they referred to him as teacher. But we also know even in that, they didn't know who he was. After he calmed the sea, what did they say in Mark 4, 41? They said to one another, who is this 
that even the wind and the sea obey him. So they call him teacher, but they really don't know who he is. Well, Peter, who the wheels are spinning on, he speaks up and he answers Jesus' question. He says, you are the Christ. Or your version of the Bible say, may say, you are the Messiah. Or thou art the Christ. Peter had seen Jesus display power and wisdom in unparalleled ways. He healed the sick. He fed hungry mouths. He taught with incredible insight. But this confession is a significant leap. It's one thing to be kind of a miracle worker. It's a whole other thing to be the Christ. And the expectation of Peter and his contemporaries is if this is the Messiah, the Messiah or the Christ carried kind of political undertones. They believed it would be obvious who the Messiah was because he would come as a king or in the line of a king. And he would come to sit on a throne and bring his kingdom to bear. But nothing has been recognizably regal about Jesus. He's way too common to be the Messiah. Well, Peter declares him to be the Christ. And that sounds very religious to us. We would say that's, that's reserved for kind of spiritual conversations. But for Peter and his contemporaries, the statement had political power. Not too much later after this moment, James and John say to Jesus, they ask for positions of power and prestige. When you go into your kingdom, we want, you know, important positions here. Soon after that, they go to Gethsemane, and the men are willing to, draw, uh, to take out their swords and fight as people come to take Jesus because they believe he's a political hero. They saw if the Messiah was to be a military conqueror that would free the Jews from the foreign occupying forces and claim his rightful throne as king. Well, we believe that Jesus is king of all creation. But the important question is, who do you say that Jesus is? I was reading the findings of some research by the Barna Group. It's, not, uh, it's fairly recent research, last couple of years. And they were polling adults in America and breaking them down by generation to determine who do people say that Jesus is. Well, because Jesus is so popular in uh, media and his name comes up, it's hard to avoid him. You would imagine that people would see Jesus more as a legend in America. But the research says that 9 out of 10 Americans, American adults, say Jesus Christ was a real person. He was a person of history. He's a true person who existed. That's what they believe. That's an incredible statistic. And over 90%, 92%, I believe is what it was. But more importantly, they believe he existed, but who was he? And so they asked that same question. And younger generations are increasingly less likely to believe that Jesus was God. The poll says around 50%, 56% of all Americans, more than half, 56% of all American adults believe Jesus is God. But millennials, the younger generation, there are fewer than half that believe that Jesus is God. Only 48%. What happens is about 30, I know I'm telling you numbers, you're like, we're never going to remember this. Getting to a point here. About 35% of millennials believe that Jesus was just some religious leader. Another spiritual leader kind of like Muhammad or the Buddha. That's what they believe. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, another, another prophet. So they believe Jesus is just one of among many spiritual leaders. So 2,000 years later, we're still wrestling with the question, who is Jesus? So the key question is not who do others say Jesus is, 
Not who do your parents say Jesus is. Now let me make a point here. I believe that the most influential person in your life is generally your parents. And so it should be the same spiritually, right? So if you're a mother or a father, do your children know what you believe about Jesus? Not just that you believe he's important, not that he existed or that he's to be honored, but do they know you believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Do they know the doubts that you've wrestled with and how you've arrived at this point, how you've settled that in your mind? They are your most important ministry. You can have all kinds of other people in your life, but your children are your most important ministry. So make sure they know where you land on this. So it's not important who others say Jesus is. It's not important uh, your parents say Jesus is or who your pastor says. But who do you say Jesus is? Clearly it's not enough just to believe that he existed. But who do you say he is? Is he just another religious leader? He didn't think so. He claimed to be the son of God. Although he spoke prophetically, he was not just a prophet. He spoke with the authority of God, and he was also not John the Baptist. In fact, John the Baptist preached and said in Mark 1, uh, verse uh, 7 and 8, and he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist is saying, there's one coming after me. He was talking about Jesus. So Jesus is not John the Baptist. So who do you say Jesus is? Do not let this day end today without answering that question. Can you agree with Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Following King Jesus as leader begins with knowing who he is. Secondly, following King Jesus as leader begins with knowing why he came. We as readers know who Jesus is because Mark tells us the first verse of the book says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we know from reading Jesus is the Son of God. Now finally, eight chapters in, Peter picks up on it. He says he's the Son of God and we're saying now we're getting somewhere. And it's so exciting to see which direction it goes. That, you know, if, you're, if you're just following along as a reader and not engaged as a believer, it's like this is going to get exciting. But what does Jesus say? He turns to the people and he says, but don't tell anybody, you know. You're like, what is he doing here? No, tell everybody. I mean, I think that's what he told us to do. Tell it. So why is he telling his disciples, keep it quiet? Well, either Jesus wants Peter to keep a lid on it so that, oh, just a while longer so that he can operate incognito, kind of fly under the radar, or he rebukes Peter to remain silent because Peter's understanding of what Christ means is flawed. He needs to be corrected. He needs to understand what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. And I think that's what's ultimately at play here. I think that Jesus does not want Peter's deficient opinions thriving among the, the people. He wants to clear things up. Plus, the disciples are just now getting it after following him all this time. So imagine those who have not been close to Jesus, and now they hear he's the Son of God, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, and how will they they may struggle with that idea so jesus begins to fill in the gaps he says you know so as the son of god or the son of man is kind of how he refers to himself here he fills in the, the gaps and describes what it actually means to be the messiah their understanding was so off base they needed to hear from jesus what's going to happen and that way when it does come to play they will know jesus said this and so he says the son of man must suffer 
He must be rejected and he must be killed. And it's interesting that he says must suffer. So the implication here in this passage is that this is God's plan. In other words, this is not just the religious rulers that get to have their way. This is not just the Roman government kind of stamping out somebody who's got a claim to a throne. This is God's plan. He says it must happen. Now they had just heard Peter's confession, which was surely a time of elation. They're all going, that's that's what we thought. You think that too? We think that. This is incredible. So there had to be an excitement there. And then what happens? Jesus kind of presses that down with kind of a pessimistic tone here. He brings this prophecy that he would suffer many things. Then he mentions that he would be rejected by the chief priests and the elders. Those are the religious rulers in Jerusalem. In other words, we're going to have a kind of run-in with the folks in Jerusalem, and I'll be rejected there. And then he would be killed. And there's this tag that after three days he would rise from the dead. And that's got a lot of hope in it, but it's probably so mysterious they didn't understand it. Well, Peter is the ultimate PR man. And he decides, I need to solve this problem. Jesus, you're saying the wrong things. I mean, this is exciting, but let me tell you what you need to say here. He believes Jesus is the Christ. He's gone public with his confession. Now he's managing the campaign. It's like, okay, how do we get Jesus to where he needs to be? So he's managing the campaign. And Jesus goes off the rails. He says, here he is. He's like, you know what? I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed. And Peter's thinking, well, I'm not going to follow somebody who's going to get killed. So we better change this here. So the man who just declared Jesus as the Christ rebukes the Christ. He pulls him aside. He says, no, you can't say that. We need to say something different. Let me give you some talking points here, Jesus. Well, Paul said something interesting in his letter to the church at Corinth. And I think it applies here. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 23, Paul writes, But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. So the cross is foolishness to a Gentile. But for the Jew, it's a stumbling block. And guess, guess which Jew tripped over it first? Peter did. There's no way this is going to happen, Jesus. Peter has fantasies about what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. He's looking for a Christ who's going to bring in a reign of peace and righteousness by overthrowing the powers, running them out of town. These people who are oppressing God's people. So if Jesus can silence the sea, if he can cast out unclean spirits, if he can feed thousands of people with one man's snack, if he can heal people with a word and a touch, then he's going to get glory and veneration, not rejection. Not suffering, not a death sentence. So Jesus, stop talking like this. If you're the Messiah, let me tell you some things you need to say. Well, Jesus recognizes the forked tongue and the slick words coming out of Peter's mouth. His arch enemy is rearing that ugly head. Peter says, get behind me, Satan. Peter's rebuke of the Christ earned him his own rebuke. And Jesus is clear to his disciples. He says, you are looking at this, at the world with the wrong eyes. He's challenging the disciples to take God's point of view, take God's perspective here. He wants them to focus on God's interests, not man's. If you haven't figured it out yet, God's interests and man's interests in this world are very different. You know what our interest is? For the world to revolve around us. That's how I am. I really would like for y'all to revolve around me. But I know the world should revolve around Christ. So I defeat that man through the power of the Spirit. 
Jesus came to suffer and die, not to fit the mold that people expected the Messiah to be. Peter's looking for a rock star, a political rock star in the Messiah, not a leader who would suffer and die. Nobody wants to follow that. He wanted deliverance through force. He wanted a rightful heir on the throne of David. And I'm sure the glitter of gold of being the right-hand man of the person who does that was really tempting to Peter. He had an agenda. He had an agenda for Jesus. And so the question is, do you have an agenda for Jesus? Voltaire is credited with saying in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. We're trying to make him look like us. The role of a disciple is to follow Jesus. But Peter got out in front, didn't he? And Jesus says, get behind me. Get back in line. Are you trying to lead Jesus where you want to go? Or where you think he should be? Do you keep pointing things out to God and say, you know, that'd be good. Or that would really make me happy. Or, God, this would make you shine. Are you following Jesus? Or are you trying to make him follow you? Disciples walk behind. And the leader does not always go where you want him to go. He doesn't always choose the easiest path. He does not always make it easy. Are you following Jesus are you, or are you dragging him along with you? Disciples follow the Lord wherever he leads. We sing that, wherever he leads, I'll go. Is that true in your life? Calling King Jesus leader begins with knowing who he is and why he came. And finally, calling King Jesus leader begins with knowing what Jesus demands. Verse 34 says, And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now this is where Jesus describes his demands and expectations for discipleship. In fact, he calls the, the crowds that are around, not just the disciples, but everybody else. And he says, okay, if you want to follow me, and then he gives three demands. First demand is you have to deny yourself. Deny self. He does not ask would-be disciples to deny something to themselves or many things to themselves. This is not about fasting. It's not about sacrificing. It's not about self-discipline. That's not what it means when we say deny self. This is about renouncing yourself as the dominant figure in your life. It's about stepping away from the steering wheel and putting it in the hands of Jesus. It means to replace self with Christ. All of a sudden, I love what he loves. I desire what he desires. I pursue after his ambitions. Discipleship, though, is not part-time work. It's not like, well, I do that when I go to church. We don't do this in our spare time. If we're to follow Christ, we follow him in every area of our life. In the workplace, in the home, in the neighborhood, in the market, with our money, with our investments, with all of our energies and efforts. God demands a controlling place in your life, not some minor role. So to follow Jesus means I deny self. Second, Jesus' disciples are told to take up a cross. Now we use that term a lot, you know, that you have a cross to bear. And when we think of that, generally how we use that term is to refer to something hard you have to do or maybe something you have to do that's probably not going to be very rewarding. You know, well, that's just the cross for you to bear. But for Jesus' initial audience, think about how vivid this imagery was. They had seen the public executions. They knew what Rome did to punish people. They knew the reality of these folks who were sentenced to death who had to carry the cross beam. 
The cross being that they would be nailed to and executed on. And Jesus is now saying, and you've got to carry your cross. Taking up your cross does not mean we do something irritating. It does not mean we do something that's a burden. It involves a willingness to give up everything dear in life, and even life itself, for the sake of Jesus. Take up your cross. So deny yourself, take up your cross. Finally, Jesus demands his disciples follow him. This means we don't just quote his words and say, can you believe he said it? What great insight. What a powerful verse. I'm going to memorize that. It doesn't mean that we marvel at the things that we did, he did or how he interacted with people. We said it's so incredible that he did that. Isn't that amazing? To follow him means we walk the same path. We say the same words. We do the same things. We inter interact, engage with the same people. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It's not something on the side. It's not just a Bible study and prayer. It means I try to be him in every in interaction that I have. To live like him. So why are these the demands? Why is, what is Jesus' rationale here? I'm going to break this up a little bit, but I'll talk through it. Verse 35 says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. We will do about anything to guarantee our life. But we very often choose the wrong path in trying to do that. And then he goes on. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. So Jesus offers this paradoxical principle here. To save your life, you have to lose it. Verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Human beings make futile attempts to safeguard their lives. They build bigger barns and store things in there so that whenever hard times come, I'm okay on my own. But nothing that you acquire in life is going to be able to save your soul. Nothing that you can earn up, save up, it's not going to happen. Verse 37, for what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The path to eternal satisfaction is in following Jesus, giving everything we have for the sake of him. And then he closes with a warning about judgment. Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I think the point here is choose now. It's a clash of kingdoms, the world against the kingdom of God. There's no fence to straddle here. Which side are you going to choose? King Jesus is not our leader in some casual way. We are called to be a follower of King Jesus. He wants to be the leader of our life. Do you trust him enough to follow? J uh, G James describes faith and doubt with this imagery of a wave. He said it's like the waves of the sea. Which one, what, what does the wave belong to? Does it belong to the water or does it belong to the wind? Because you see that water rise up, affected, the wave is affected by the wind, then it crashes back down. And when we trust God and then doubt him, it looks the same way. It's like, who do we belong to? To the kingdom of this world or to the kingdom of heaven? King Jesus is leader and demands his children deny himself, take up their cross, and follow him. So to follow Jesus means the world's ties are loose on you so that you are free to follow him. You don't allow the things that entangle people here to entangle you. You say, no, I'm going to keep those things loose. So wherever he might call me, whatever he might have me do, I can do it. There may be a lot to gain in this world, but there is more at stake to lose. Your soul. And I think that some of you might be on the brink of following the world. 
kind of ready to toss in the hat, maybe tempted to pursue the mighty dollar or all the pleasure and the glory and the fame that this world might offer, to walk out on your family, to think only of yourself. Listen to me, following Jesus is always better. You may think you are saving your life by trying to steal it in some way. You may gain all the world has to offer, but is it worth losing your soul? Don't give up following Jesus now. Calling King Jesus leader means we are willing to truly follow him. Maybe you recognize that Jesus is a true person from history, but do you know what knowing Jesus is all about? Perhaps you would say with 92% of American adults that you believe that Jesus is a real person who lived. But who was he? Jesus was not a religious figure or a spiritual leader. He is God. And the God who made you loves you. But the scriptures say we've all rebelled. We've all rebelled against God by choosing sin. And the scriptures say our sin has separated us from him. It will for all eternity. But God loved us so much he made a way by sending Jesus the Christ to be rejected, to suffer, and to die. He died on the cross, which ultimately paid the penalty for our sins. And three days later, he was resurrected, giving us the hope of eternal life with him. Do you believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? If you want to make a decision to follow Jesus, don't let this day pass without placing faith in him. If you know Jesus Christ as leader, are you living for the Lord by recognizing there are many people around you who don't? Barna says in its study that 18% of all adults in America admit they're not sure who Jesus is. Well, who better to tell them? Jesus wants to use us in the lives of those around you. So the question is, who's your one? I hope you got one of these cards. And you've written down a name there. The person that you're praying for. The person that you're looking for an opportunity to share Christ with. The person that you're hoping to invite. Possibly even here on Easter. As followers of Jesus, we should be looking for more who want to call King Jesus leader of their life. Our Father, we thank you that as we come to hear your word, that you speak straight to our souls. God, and I pray for the many that are out here that have not made a commitment to follow you. They've not decided that you're the Christ. Jesus, don't let them pass this day without doing that. And Father, for each of us, as we come to a time of commitment and decision, Lord, help us always choose to follow you and trust you with our life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Come to a time of invitation. If God's speaking to your heart, maybe it's to join the church, maybe it's to follow in believer's baptism, make a decision for Christ, or some other way, I hope that you'll respond. Our choir's going to sing, and I'm going to invite you to stand. And as God is leading, you respond.
be seated. 